just to give you a bit of a report from uh, from Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church, we have um, we have embarked on something that's actually pretty neat. We will have our first uh, ever Rhymes and Reformation conference, which is uh, very neat because we will be bringing to an urban context uh, pastors from uh, various reform backgrounds. We will have a uh, Presbyterian pastor from Pula uh, First Presbyterian Church. We'll have Pastor Nick here. Myself, we'll have several brothers from uh, Columbus, Georgia, from uh, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church there. And we're going to be gathering at Christ Centered for um, a bit of a conference, if you will, where we are inviting those who are of various denominations, namely those within the charismatic movement within our city, because they make up a great majority of the Christian populace there. So we're inviting them to come in and to hear and to inquire and to ask, what is this thing called Reformed theology? Why am I so excited about this? Because at least in our city, it's not being done. So in the city of Savannah, where there's uh, much to be praying for, uh, there's also much to be rejoicing about. That Reformed theology is starting to permeate that which has been shut off for many, many years from Reformed teaching. It is an evangelistic effort of what we're doing. And so we're very excited and we ask that you pray for us and pray that God's grace will be poured out and that souls will be converted um, to a true and to a high view of the gospel and of Christ and of the sovereignty of God. So pray for us in that regard. On today, we will be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter number 25. So if you would turn there with me. When I was ordained into ministry years ago, my grandfather was the pastor of this church. And so every Sunday, I would sit and I would listen to him preach. And it seemed as if week after week, he got longer and longer and longer and longer. And so when I started going there, you know, there would be always this guy, this deacon who would sit in the corner. He would always fall asleep. And I never understood why. And so as I stuck around long enough, I noticed why he fell asleep, because every week the sermon would get longer and longer and longer and longer. And I said to myself, I said, well, I will never be that long winded. Oh, my, how I have to take that back. There's so much to say and so little time to do it. So pray much for me that I might uh, move swiftly, but effectively through the text. Let us read together Matthew chapter number 25. If you would just follow me as I read Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went on and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he who had also received two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground here. You have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us make our prayer. Eternal Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. Thank you for your eternal mercy that endures forever. Father, I pray that as we enter into this teaching on today, that you will protect our ears and our hearts from error. Father, that you would crush me, crush me under the mightiness of your hand, that you would make me so low that all I desire and need is Christ. Father, may you open up our ears today to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. Father, give us attentive ears and hearts to focus much on the sermon today. For one purpose and one purpose alone that we might be conformed into the image and likeness of your dear son. Father, let our hearts rejoice in that great work of Christ that he will, by faith, work in us on today. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The topic of our sermon today will be why comes to you in the form of a question. Why do we labor? Why do we labor? We can take this from a collective approach and ask the very individual question, why do you labor in the kingdom of God and of Christ? We do live in a day where the idea of toiling is something to be snared or looked down upon. Today, our desire is to investigate from Scripture that which our Lord and Savior has commanded and expressly laid down within Scripture is that we are called to be faithful servants on mission in this world. For one purpose primarily, and that one purpose alone. What is that purpose, you might ask? It is not primarily for your happiness. It is not primarily for your happiness. It is not primarily for your ease. But we labor, labor for one primary reason, and that is to hear our master, Lord and Savior, say to us, well done. I have considered that in this world we uh, often labor for personal gain and personal growth. We enter into the marketplace and we trade our time for treasure. And that seems to sometimes be the end all of our entrance into the marketplace. 
But today from scripture, I hope to challenge us to look at several areas of our life and consider our primary motivation and attitude by which we are toiling in this world. You see, the life of every believer, it's destined in is to be like Jesus. In every way, in every area, at all times. And so as faithful servants from the text, we will see that we have not been placed in this world for our personal gratification and joy. We have been placed here on mission to do the bidding and beckoning of our Lord and Savior. And from that, we find our joy. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, deals with this parable as a representation of the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is relaying to his disciples the end coming of his kingdom. This parable is to express to them the importance of their life in this world, their purpose of their life in this world, their mission of their life in this world. Jesus in verse number one says that the kingdom of heaven is likened unto this. When he expresses here the kingdom of heaven, that is the rule and the authority of the realm by which our sovereign God controls. And that is the entire universe. And so in a very general sense, the kingdom of heaven expands everywhere for God is king over all things. But in a very particular sense. We're going to address today the life of the believing one, the life of the servant that is here on mission. Jesus in verse 14 begins to tell the parable of the wealthy landowner, master, who leaves to go on a very lengthy trip. And he leaves his possessions, his property, his valuables to his servants. And he leaves it to them for several reasons. The primary reason is to invest it so that when he recomes, when he returns, he will find interest on his investments. Jesus goes on to say that he entrusts three individuals with various amounts of his treasure. To one he entrusts five, and to one he entrusts two, and to the other he entrusts one. And he does this according to their ability as he has Determined. When Jesus here in verse number 14, if you would draw your attention there, Jesus says, for for it, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. Who has called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, just to set a very strong a foundation here, when Jesus uses the term servant here, it is better to be understood as that of slave. That of a slave. And this will start to color in some of the background of our teaching on today. This Greek word, doulos, carries with it the idea of one who gives himself up to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. 
It carries with it also the idea of one devoted to another, to the disregard of one's own interests. And so here Jesus paints this great picture that we are servants of his, that this kingdom is likened unto a man who has slaves. There's one thing to take note here is that a slave does not do his own beckoning, nor does he follow his own prescription or his plan. He follows that of his master. And so here Jesus sets the precedent and the tone of how the believer ought to see their life. They ought to see their life as that of a slave. The first premise that I will note to you on today is that as slaves of Christ's kingdom, we have no right to determine how we ought work in his kingdom. As slaves of Christ's righteousness, of Christ's kingdom, of Christ's holy realm, we have no right to redefine his kingdom as we see fit. We are slaves. Some will say, well, James, I am not a slave to anything. If you would just simply indulge me as I lay a foundation here in John chapter number eight and verse 34. You see, Jesus will make very clear that from the time of our birth, we have been slaves. Those of us who enjoy sweet fellowship with the Father because of that vicarious work of Jesus on the cross, we're made new slaves. In John's gospel, chapter number 8 and 34, the scripture says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, a servant to sin. Sin was once our master. Sin once controlled us. Sin had ultimate power over us in our dead state. We were slaves to sin. Yet in the book of Romans, chapter number 6, verse 17, the scripture says expressly, the apostle Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves, servants of righteousness. You see, we have always been slaves to something, to some power. That power before salvation was sin. The power that we are most willing slaves to now is righteousness. And as slaves of righteousness, we have no will of our own. And so the premise that Jesus will set here and I will apply to our thoughts and hearts today is that as slaves of righteousness, most willing slaves, might I add. That as we labor in this world on mission. We have no right to redefine what our role is. Why is that necessary to note? It is because in our world we begin to explain away why we are not effective in the working of the gospel in the home, in the marketplace, 
and our family, to the nations and to the world. We have been called by the gospel to be effective workers with that which has been entrusted to us, the valuables of the kingdom, which is the gospel. Jesus has given every single one of us a measure and an ability and a gifting to be effective with his gospel. Have we become entangled with the world to the point that we have lost focus of our true call and our mission? Not only do I want to note to you that as a slave of righteousness, you have no right or ability to redefine this kingdom. It is not only because you are a slave. It is not only because we are slaves of righteousness. It is secondarily because we have no life. What do I mean? Does it, yeah. Am I stating that we are square in some degree that we have no outlook on life. No, that is not what I mean at all. You have no will that you ought be expressing apart from the gospel. What do you mean, James? If you would just indulge me again by turning to Colossians chapter number three, verse number one. So as slaves or servants of righteousness in the kingdom of God and of his Christ, we are most willing slaves, desirous of one thing, that we might fulfill the calling of our master. It is not only because we are slaves of righteousness, but it is also because we have no life. In Colossians chapter number three and verse one, the apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae and he states to them emphatically, if then, or better to be understood since then, you have, if you profess Christ and you believe that he has raised you from the dead, spiritually speaking, and he has granted to you salvation If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. And your life, your new life is hidden in Christ, in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, through that great work of God committed to us in Christ, who won for us, the salvation that we enjoy. We not only have been transferred or translated from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into this new kingdom now, this kingdom of his dear son. And with that, we have been given new affections, new desires, new wants, new goals. And it is not consistent with our own will and desire. It must be consistent with Christ, his agenda, and his purposes. This ought be the premise why we labor in this world on mission. We have been entrusted with the property of his kingdom, Jesus says in Matthew 25 and verse 14. That we slaves of righteousness have been entrusted with the valuables of his kingdom. We have been entrusted with the gospel. In verse 15 of Matthew's gospel, chapter number 
25, Jesus goes on to say that in this parable, the master of the estate gave five talents to one individual. And to another individual, he gave two. And to another individual, he gave one. But he gave them each according to his ability. You see, every servant of righteousness, every slave to righteousness, everyone who exists in this new kingdom has been called to the service of their master. If you will notice here, his servants were left with the task of busying themselves to generate more of that which would please their master. You see, their time was not divided as slaves of righteousness. Their life consisted of one thing. And that was to generate increase for their master. Every servant was given a talent. It was doled out to him according to his ability. You see, as Christians in this world, we are on mission in our family. We are on mission in the marketplace. We are on mission in our home. We are on mission to the nations. How are we investing the gospel, the property of God's kingdom? How are we investing it in the world? What is our motivation? What is our attitude in permeating this world, our homes, our family, our church? How are we permeating it with the gospel? Are we doing it simply as something that is expected of us as Christians? Is that our motivation? Are we doing it because it's the Christian thing to do? Or do we have a high view of the task committed to us? You see, if we have a high view of the task that is committed to us, this task of investing the gospel in the lives of men, if we are committed to this task, we are committed because we understand the value thereof. What is the value? That souls would be saved? Yes, that is a value. Is the value that the saints would be edified? Yes, that is a value. Is the value that the church would unite and become one? Yes, that is a value. But of the utmost importance, the believer must concern himself with this one measure. That in every aspect of my labor with this gospel, in this world, on mission, I labor to hear him say at and on that great day, well done, that good and faithful servant. That is why we must continue in our labor. So I not only want to point out to you that with regard to our labor, it must be that that has been committed to us, this labor of righteousness. It is also because we have no life. But secondarily, it is also because every slave understands that his will must be the will of his master. Every slave must understand that his will must be the will of his master. 
Jesus says in John chapter number 5, verse 30, a very significant truth. Our master and our Lord says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice that this is what Jesus says. That he is busying himself with the task of his father. To do the will of his father. Is this not the same ministry and mindset that is committed to his servants? In your hearing, I will read John chapter 4 and verse number 34. Again, our master in law makes a very decisive and emphatic statement. He says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And again, in John 6, 38, Jesus, our master and Lord, says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Matthew 12, he says it again. In Matthew 7, he says it again. John 6 and 27, he says it again. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus says, my will is to do the will of him that sent me. As slaves of righteousness, as servants of righteousness, entrusted with the valuable property of the kingdom, your will must be consistent with that of Christ. For his will was consistent with that of the Father. Why are we laboring as we walk with Christ? As we live out this Christian blessedness of salvation, what is our motivation? What is our attitude of heart? We generally find this in those who have become dull of hearing in their walk where the gospel just does not seem exciting to them anymore. The question is why? Might I surmise to you that they have lost focus of why they were left here? It is to occupy. It is to invest the gospel in the marketplace in the nations, in our families. As we will see, it was only the wicked servant who took the valuables of the kingdom and did not invest it. It was the wicked servant that hid the valuables of the kingdom. It was the wicked servant that did not invest the glorious property of that entrusted to him. Here's a question. Have we labored so much for the bread of this world that perishes that we have not considered the purpose of all our labor? That is for Christ's eternal pleasure. As we will discuss That labor exists in several ways. One of the great mysteries of of our faith, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter number 5, is that of the unity of Christ to his church. I hope to discuss here shortly how that view of labor must exist in marriage. 
how that view of labor must extend to friends and family and how this view of labor must extend to the local church. You see, there are many who press into this labor of Christ, who pretend to be something that they're not. Spurgeon said in his sermon on the wedding garment, which is a parallel to this in Matthew chapter 22. He says this of many who pretend to be true slaves of righteousness. And I quote, those who are permitted to see large additions to the church will find this parable of the wedding garment to be singularly appropriate and timely. Whenever there is revival and many are brought to Christ, it seems inevitable that at some time a portion of unworthy persons should enter the church. However diligent may be the oversight, there will be pretenders creeping in unaware who have no true part or lot in the matter. And hence, when the preacher is most earnest for the ingathering of souls to Christ, he needs to couple therewith a holy jealousy. Least those who come forward to make profession of faith should be moved by carnal motives and should not really have given their hearts to God. We must use the net to draw in many. But all who are not good fishes, they are some taken as well. On the threshing floor of Zion, the heap is not all pure wheat. The chaff is mangled with the grain, and therefore the winnowing fan is wanted. God's furnace is in Zion, and there is great need for it. For the gold is yet in the ore and needs to be separated from the dross. Wood and hay and stubble make for quick building and quick work. But it is a waste of effort. It is most needful in times of religious excitement to remind men that godliness does not consist in profession. But most to be proved by inward vitality and outward holiness. Everything will have to be tested by the heart searching God. And if when he comes to search us, we are found wanting, we shall be expelled even from the marriage feast itself. Consider those words. That it is only the thief. That it is only the wicked servant. That it is only the pretender who does not busy himself laboring in the commands of his Lord and Master. Why do you labor? In that which has been entrusted to you. Let us turn our attention back to Matthew chapter 25. Verse number 18. In Matthew 25, in verse number 18, Jesus goes on to say, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. You see, this servant of sorts is those who pressed into the kingdom of Christ of their own accord, as Spurgeon was said. Not motivated by the inward move of the Holy Ghost, but motivated by carnal desires. They press in and hide the talents of their master. But the true servant will always invest for he understands, she understands, they understand why they are doing it. Why they are living out the gospel. Their purpose behind it is for one reason and that alone is to hear Jesus say to them, you have done well. You have multiplied that which I have given to you. You have taken Every opportunity that I have presented you with 
to invest the gospel and not to hide it. When the heart-searching God comes, will he say that of you? Will he say to me, James, you have taken every opportunity to invest this treasure in jars of clay. You have taken every opportunity to invest this in the laws. You have taken every opportunity in the marketplace to lift me up. Will he say that to me? Surely there's much imperfection in me. Surely I have failed much in investing this gospel every time. But it doesn't lessen the call for me to desire and want to do it every time. What will he say of you? As he have left You here on mission to invest this gospel, this treasure of his kingdom. What will he say of you? When you stand before him. Will he say to you, well done, you have done well. For the true servant. Who has been brought into union with Christ. By way of the Holy Ghost and the regeneration of their once dead heart has a desire to be a slave of righteousness. Because they have no life of their own. Their desire is to see the will of their master come to fruition. Come to bear in their life. That is why we were left here. As I said to the church, I preached this message several months ago at the church, and I said, you know, I always wondered as a new believer why God didn't just save me and take me with him. Am I alone in asking that question? No. And I used to cry out, Father, why do you leave me here? Look at how I still sin. Take me, Jesus. In my charismatic voice. Take me, Lord, take me with you to be with you. But later I understood he left this jar of clay here. So that his power might be known out there. You see, that is why we must labor with the objective of hearing Christ say, well done, because we'll press In the face of adversity, we'll still give them the gospel when they spit at us and they curse at us and they tell us that they don't want to hear it. It does not stop our love and our heart from reaching out to invest in them. That alone which can save them. My point that I will later get to is could you could you just simply imagine how evil of heart one must be to have Life-changing balm and medicine for this world. And dig a hole and hide it. That is hatred. That is wickedness, Jesus says. Do you take every opportunity to invest the gospel? Or are there certain areas that are off-limits? Well, James, you know, when I'm at work, you can't talk about religion. I didn't tell you to preach to them. Have you invited them to your home for a meal? Why do you think he gave you the home? Why do you think he gave you the food? Was it for your temporal enjoyment? Secondarily speaking, it was. But everything the scripture says that we do ought to be to the glory of God. When we go into the marketplace to our jobs. Do you think you simply have that job because you were so smart or because you were absolutely qualified? 
You have what you have because of the talent that he has given you. And by talent, I don't mean necessarily your education level. God has sovereignly determined that you would be where you're at. And equally so, he has determined that you would labor well while you're there. You see, all of the servant's life surrounded the will of his master. He entrusted that which was valuable to him to his servants. And he expects them to multiply it so that when he returns, he will find more than he left. Now, as we speed along here in verse number 19. Now, after a long time, the scripture says the master of those servants came and settled the accounts. This is the end of age for the saints. And he who has received, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me the two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. He also said to the one who had the one talent. Come forward. And he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter no seed, where you scattered no seed, pardon me. So I was afraid and I went and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew, you knew that yours, you knew that, uh, uh, pardon me, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. You will notice here that Jesus does not require of each individual to be like the other. His requirement was not that Johnny did great work. And so therefore I could not be like Johnny or Pastor so-and-so or Brother so-and-so. But Jesus states that the master required of them that which he had left them. The individual account. You see, Jesus will require of us. Not to be like James. He will require of us to be and to operate and to manifest and to grow and to invest that which he has individually given us. Surely, if the man who had five talents multiplied it to ten, what a hard work. Surely the man who had two talents and multiplied it into four. Surely what is a hard, what a hard work. Well, it stands the reason that for the person who had one, surely he should have been able to multiply that talent and make more investment. You see, Jesus gives to us according to our ability. And it is in that that he expects us to multiply it. It will not look like the others, but it will be what he has required of us. 
Spurgeon also says with regard to this text. The man who has many talents requires much hard labor to use them all. He might make the excuse that he found five talents too many to put out in the market at once. You have only one. Anybody can lend out his own or his one talent to interest. It will cost you but a little trouble to supply that. And inasmuch as you live and inasmuch as you die without having improved the one talent, your guilt will be exceedingly increased by the very fact that your talent was but little. And consequently, the trouble of using it would have been but little as well. If you have but a little, God required from you but a little. Why then did you not render that? You shall be the more inexcusable on the account of the little that was required of you. Let me then address you and remind you that you will be brought into account. You see, not being called to pastor the office of pastor elder or not being called to the diaconate or not being the one who reads the scripture on the Lord's day. It does not mean that the father has not gifted you with the ability to serve in his kingdom, for he has. And it is in light of that that he will require that from you. Will you stand before him and say, you have given me this one, but I was sorely afraid that I would mess it up, that I wouldn't share the gospel right, so I'm not going to say anything. Because I don't completely understand all of the doctrines, so I'm not that smart. Of, so I'm not going to say anything. He doesn't require you to be as the person whom he has given five to. He requires you to be as the person that he has given one to. That even in the little arenas that he's allowed you to influence and to permeate with the gospel... Are you faithful? Or are you like the wicked servant, making much excuses? You will notice that the individual with one talent makes this excuse. He says, I knew you to be a hard man, gathering where you did not reap or sow. Well, if he really knew him to be a hard man gathering where he did not reap or sow, doesn't it stand the reason that that is all the more reason to sow it? Or do we presume upon the grace of God as saints? Well, I'm forgiven of all my sins, so I don't necessarily have to share the gospel with anyone. I don't have to invest that which he has graced me with. You see, the individual with one talent pressed into the kingdom of God of his own motivation, not by the work of the Spirit. And so the wicked servant turned out not to be a servant at all. His wickedness. The fact that he pretended to be a servant of the master was made manifest when the master returned because he had done nothing with the values of his kingdom. When our master and Lord returns, will he say to you, well done? 
Or will he find that you have hidden the treasure of the gospel in the ground? Will he find that you have not been faithful laboring in his vineyard? Will he find this? If you indulge me for 30 seconds here. Wow. Time flies. Remember the parable that I said to you when I started. My grandfather would get longer and longer every week. It's rubbing off. Listen, why do we labor in our marriage? I'm just going to hit these three points and then I'm going to move out of the way. Why do we labor in our marriage? Do we labor to have a good marriage as it relates to the standard of the world? That we've got two incomes and we've got two houses and we've got, you know, a primary residence and a vacation home and jet skis and boats and two cars. And when we look at the divorce statistics in America, unfortunately, I think that is why we labor to be married. I think that is why most get married. But the viewpoint of a servant to righteousness, a slave to righteousness, must be in the context of holy writ. You must labor not for the things that perish. But as a husband, you must labor as a slave to righteousness in the kingdom of God and of his Christ. You must labor according to Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty two through thirty three. As a husband, you must labor to serve your wife as Christ does the church. As a wife, you must labor to submit to him as you do unto Christ. So that God's name may not be reviled among the heathens. How so? Because they will look at your labor in marriage. And they themselves will have a clear picture, a clear example of Christ and his bride. You see, that's the primary reason why you ought labor in marriage. Everything else is secondary. Why are you laboring in your marriage? Is it to get more and to amass more? Or is it to be to her what Christ is to us? That's what the servant need busy himself with. And in doing so, we will have the marriage that we desire. Why do we labor with our friends and family and the nations? As a slave of righteousness, it must be consistent with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. It must be to give them the ministry that was committed to us. The ministry of reconciliation. You know, the guys at the church, they all play basketball. I'm the only one who doesn't know how to play basketball and dance. That's an oxymoron, huh? But that's okay. I said, when you go out into the marketplace, when you go out and you do all of these things, what is your purpose? Is it simply to have a good time? Well, maybe secondary and tertiary sense, yes, possibly. But your primary reason of going out into the nations is to exact that ministry of reconciliation such that you may get to know them and they might get to know you, that you might have a meal with them so that as an effective servant with the talent that you've been given, you might give to them that which you've received. That you may speak to them of the things of Christ. That is why you must labor with your family and with your friends and with the nations. It's not for your primary enjoyment. That's secondary. You are doing it so that you might give them the gospel. For that is of great value. And lastly, why do you labor in the local church? Why do you labor in the local church? 
First Corinthians chapter 12 makes it very clear of four regards. We labor in the local church so that we can be one. We don't assemble on the Lord's Day simply to hear a good message preached. That's one aspect. But we labor to become one, to draw close to one another. We labor in a local church because we understand that we have been positioned and arranged by God in the local church to serve her. Not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of Christ. To hear him say, well done. We labor in the local church also for the care and the support of the body. You see, when we gather on the Lord's Day, it is not just to gather and hear the sermon and then run out the door and go home. It is to invest in one another's lives. It is to unify and become one. You see, that's what the faithful servant is doing. They're not running back to hide the gospel in their own home. But they're reaching out to others within the body, uniting and becoming one. You see, God has a purpose for all things. And as a servant of righteousness, a slave to righteousness. Let me remind you, you have no will of your own. Your will is his will. You labor for his approval. Primarily. You are laboring to hear him say to you, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Let us not forget that. Let us not lose sight of that in this adulterous generation. We are here for his will. We are here to labor for him. To bring glory to his name in our home, with our family, our friends and the nations. You are a slave to righteousness. And he has commanded you as a slave to invest the gospel, to make return of it. So that when he returns, he might say to us, well done, that good and thy faithful servant. You have been faithful over much, over the little. Come now and enter the joy of your master. Consider that when you go home and you have those squirmish times with the wife or the husband. It's not for your own personal victory. Or your own personal joy. It is for the cause and the sake of Christ. When you go to the nations, when you go back to work on tomorrow, remember that. You are a slave. Your life is gone. It is hidden with God in Christ. Consider why you labor. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this Lord's day. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us without pressure and care of servile work to rest the entire day on the great work of Christ. Father, as we go out through this day, help us to be reminded that we are laborers in your kingdom, for your cause, not our own. Father, help us to know that you have gifted us to invest this gospel in this lost world. And we have no right to set it aside, to make it the secondary view of our life. But it must be the primary one. For Christ is our life.
Help us to trust in him more. And not cower down in the sharing and investing of this treasure. Aid us through the work of the Holy Spirit, God. To be what you've called us to be. That is light among darkness. Salt to an unseasoned world. Holy, royal priest in an unholy, evil world. Help us to know that you have chosen to send us out as sheep among wolves. To give our life, even as Christ has given it for us. Because we are here to do your will. We thank you for this. And we pray that you would do all these things for your glory and for our joy. For truly, Father, you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.